0: Good morning. Good morning, it's great to see y'all. I am excited about today, excited about starting a new series. Um, I, I was telling the band before this, uh, the worship ser- service started, I plan my sermons all year, uh, basically in November or October. So next week I'm going to plan 2020. So last November I was planning this year, and so today I'm looking at what I plan and I'm thinking, why did I only allot four, four weeks for this series? I'm excited about this series. I wish I'd given it more time. We're going to have to enjoy the four weeks we have because guess what? In four weeks, it's going to be Christmas time. So there's your public service announcement. But Psalm 121, we're beginning our, our new series. And uh, there's a book on these Psalms I'm going to be talking about. The title of the book is A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Someone in the first service said, when you mention a book, you need to say it twice. So A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson is the guy who did the message paraphrase of the Bible. Um, Great author, great uh, man of God, passed away last year. But in the book he talks about how once he was trying to uh, remove the blade from his lawnmower so he could sharpen it, so he had the mower flipped over and he had his wrench that fit that bolt just perfectly that held the blade on and he was pushing with everything he had And nothing was happening. Eugene Peterson was a pretty big guy, you know, but he couldn't turn that bolt at all. So he got a four foot length of pipe that fit just over, just perfectly over the end of that wrench. And he slid it over the end of that wrench, gave himself plenty of leverage, started pushing again, again, not even an inch, nothing. So then he found a big rock and he started banging on the pipe as hard as he could. He said, at this point, I was emotionally invested in my lawnmower. Some of us know what that's like, right? Uh, While he's banging, his neighbor comes across the street. He comes up to him and says, listen, I I couldn't help seeing what you were doing, and um, I have a mower that's just like yours, and I'm pretty sure that the threads on that bolt run the opposite way, so you'll need to turn that bolt the other way to get it off. And so he turned his wrench around, cranked it a couple of times, sure enough, had it off. Now, I identify with that story, because uh, you know whatever the opposite of what a handyman is, that's what I am. And so there have been lots of times when I've been trying to do little projects, very, very simple things things that they don't even show on HGTV because they just assume you know how to do them. And there are things that I've been trying to do and I haven't been able to accomplish them and, and nothing's working and I can't figure it out. And then someone comes along, usually my wife, and says, have you thought about trying it this way? And my first reaction is, did I ask for your help? Doesn't it look like I know what I'm doing? Come on. I will come to you when I need help. But then finally, when I have exhausted my patience, I'll turn around and try what this other person has suggested, and it works. And you know what? The sense of relief and joy is so palpable, it overcomes any pride that says, I'm not going to tell her that what she suggested was right. It's just so great to finally get it right, to finally get it going the right direction. And I know you can identify. I know you've been there. Even the handiest person in this room. So think about that emotion. Think about that feeling of, oh, that's the answer. I, this is the way I should have been doing it all along. Because we're going to come back to that in just a minute. So we're starting this series, and it's on a a section of the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. Now, you probably know, even if you've barely been to church before, that the Psalms are the middle book of the Bible. There's 150 of them. It's by far the longest book of the whole Bible. You probably know, you've probably been told at least, that this is the hymn book of Israel. So Jesus grew up singing these songs just like you and I sang the songs that were on the screen just a moment ago. You probably didn't know that there were different Psalms for different purposes. Just like there are songs we sing only at Christmas time, or songs we sing at the end of a service when we have an invitation time, there were per- specific Psalms for specific purposes. These were called Psalms of Ascent because they were sung by Israelites as they traveled to Jerusalem. See, three times a year, there was a festival in Israel, in Jerusalem, that any Israelite who had the ability to wanted to be in Jerusalem to celebrate it. One was in spring, we call it the Passover. Another one was in the early summer, we call it the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. As Christians, we know Pentecost a little better. And then in the fall, there was the Feast of the Tabernacles. So if you were, an, if you were a Jew, you wanted to be in Jerusalem, you did everything you could to get there to celebrate one of those three festivals. And because back then the only way to travel was by foot, unless you were wealthy enough to have something you could ride... They traveled in groups. They traveled in community. So they would travel as one large extended family, like the family of Jesus. We know uh, in that story in the Gospels when Jesus is 12 years old and he gets left behind in the temple. It takes them three days to figure out he's missing. Why? Because they're traveling in such a large group. Joseph figures he's with Aunt Miriam and Mary figures he's with Uncle Jacob. And they just, it takes them a while to figure it out. They traveled in big extended families or even as whole villages to keep one another safe and to keep one another uh, occupied and, and, and to have that companionship. And as they walked, they would sing these songs. This was their travel playlist, you might say. Now, they call them psalms of ascent because Jerusalem is literally the highest point elevation wise in all of Israel. So whichever direction you're coming from in Israel, you're ascending if you're walking towards Jerusalem and the temple happened to be the highest point in Jerusalem. But the real reason they called them psalms of ascent was because they weren't going to Jerusalem just to see the sights or to to have some good shawarma or whatever. I mean, they were going there to meet with God, to go to his temple. Sacrifice to praise His name, and they're hoping, they're hoping, they're hoping to get into His presence, and that's our hope too. See, we believe at First Baptist Church there are three things that everybody ought to be doing on an ongoing basis to grow in discipleship, to become the people God wants us to be. One of those is connecting with God in worship, and one of those is growing in Christ-like qualities. As we participate in, in spiritual disciplines like prayer and Bible study and, and getting together as part of a life group. And the third one is reaching others with his love. So you pray for lost people. So you establish relationships and maintain relationships with people who are outside the church. So you get involved in ministry to those who don't go here. So connecting, growing, reaching that's how we think, our, that's how we, think we become the people God wants us to be. So, how are you doing on that first one? How often do you connect with God? And you know you've been in His presence and you're changed as a result. See, I love what we do here on Sunday mornings. This is my favorite day of the week, even though some of you think it's the only day of the week I work. Very funny. But I love this day because... We put a lot of work into this. I I put a lot of work into the sermon. I know that Robert and Nathan put tons of work into the worship service and all the volunteers. Everybody's working so hard. Alan did some math once. And it's something like 200 people every week that it takes to put Sunday mornings on here at First Baptist. But I'm not naive enough to think that even with all that preparation time and prayer, that all you have to do is just show up. And if you can last through the sermon and maybe even not fall asleep, you will have connected with God. That's not true. It takes something more on your part. So as we look through these passages over the next four weeks, we're not going to look at all 15, but I want you to ask yourself, what can I do to prepare my heart to really connect with God? Not just on Sundays, but every day of my life. that I can walk with Him so that I can live in His presence. And chapter one, Psalm 121 is a great place to start. So let's read that one, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills... From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So if you want to know what this psalm is about, if you want to sum it up in one sentence, I've got a really handy tip for you. A lot of Hebrew poetry, and that's what the psalms are, a lot of Hebrew poetry is structured in such a way that the main point is in the middle. It's a a specific literary technique called a chiasm where you start at the bottom with the beginning of the psalm and you end at the bottom, and then in the middle is the point. So you're building up and then you're descending. So the middle sentence of Psalm 121, 58 hebrew syllables until you get to verse 5 where it says the lord is your keeper and then there's 58 hebrew syllables after that pretty cool huh right there in the middle not only that but in hebrew there's eight instances of the word keep or keeper the lord is our keeper the lord is our keep the lord is our guard he's our protection he's our strength he's our fortress now what do we need protection from Three things are mentioned in this psalm. One is rocks that make us stumble. So if you're walking this long journey to Jerusalem through a pretty arid land and you step on a rock and your foot turns, your ankle turns, you're in trouble because there's not a hospital around and there's no car to take you. If you're by yourself, you're probably going to lay there until you die. If you're with people, they'll have to carry you, which means it'll slow everybody down, which makes the whole group more susceptible to predators, to bandits, to the elements. And then there's the sun. He will protect us from the sun. We know here in Texas, because we have a six month long summer, right? And that's putting it mildly. We know that if you need to mow the yard, if you need to dig a ditch, if you need to build something, if you need to rake something, if you need to do anything outside, you do it early in the morning before it gets hot. You know, when it's only 80, right? And you know, hopefully you know by now, if you're outside doing some work and you find that you've stopped sweating all of a sudden, or you've got a pounding headache, or you feel nauseous, you need to get inside immediately, you need to get help because you're probably at the beginning of sunstroke, and that's bad. The Israelites had to deal with the same thing because the the climate of Israel is roughly the same as Texas. They had the same kind of perils. Now, what is this about protecting us from the moon in verse 6? Well, in ancient times, not just in Israel, but across cultures, it was thought that exposure to the moon would cause mental illness. And so if someone was insane, they'd say he'd been moonstruck. And so what the psalmist is literally saying is God is going to protect you, not just physically, but emotionally. And you might say, well, isn't that a primitive thing for him to say? I don't think the psalmist actually believed that the moon gave you mental illness. He's just using a euphemism of that time. By the way, we do the same thing. Anybody ever heard the term lunatic? That's, that's the same thing. Luna is the moon, right? So he's using a euphemism to say God protects you both physically and mentally. And I think we can all tell stories of ways God's protected us. And you may know people who have great stories to tell. I have a friend uh, who, who was a deacon at my previous church, and he's in his 90s now. He was in the Navy in World War II, served in the Pacific Theater. And he told a he told story he told me several times uh, about being on an aircraft carrier in the Pacific and they were in the midst of a battle, kamikazes were crashing into the decks of that boat so fast and so often, he was just sure it was going to go down. And he told me, he said, here I am, I'm this young guy, probably 19 years old at the time, he said, I thought really seriously about going and climbing on top of the torpedoes so that when the the ship caught fire, I'd blow up and I wouldn't drown. I just wanted to die quickly if I was going to die. He said, I have no idea how I lived through that, except that God protected me. Now, you probably know someone who has a story like that. Maybe you have a story like that. Maybe you have a story of the doctors told you there's no hope and you recovered and and it was a miraculous healing. We read Psalm 121 and we think of things like that. Do You know that devout Jews to this day, if a baby's being born, they'll write down Psalm 121 on a slip of paper and put it in the delivery room. Or if they've got a newborn, they'll put this Psalm in the nursery because they're thinking, God, I want you to protect my child. There's a problem with this. If, if that's your interpretation of Psalm 121, there's a problem, and that is this. The Bible is quite clear. that Following Jesus doesn't exempt you from pain. Jesus said in this world, in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. Many other passages in Scripture talk, about, talk to us about how to deal with suffering, how to deal with pain, how to deal with strife. Christians do get hurt. Christians do get sick. Christians do struggle with anxiety and depression and other mental illnesses. Christians are not exempt from suffering. So, Psalm 121 must be about something other than a 100% guarantee that you are exempt. Because that's not promised in Scripture when you read Scripture in context. So, what is this about? What is this really saying? Because, honestly, this is better than that. The first verse says, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? Okay, so... You need a little background knowledge of the Old Testament for this. Some of you know this. In the Old Testament world, in Israel, the hills were places of pagan worship. So when you read the Old Testament, it'll talk about the high places up on the mountaintops. High places were shrines. They were temples. They were places you would go if you wanted to buy a magical amulet to keep you safe, or if you wanted to put a curse on one of your enemies, or if you wanted to visit a shrine prostitute, or if you wanted to sacrifice one of your children so you would get a good crop next year. If if you thought that God couldn't take care of you or you just wanted to hedge your bets, you'd go up there and you'd worship Molech or you'd worship um, Ashtoreth or or Baal or one of the many other gods, Dagon, and many other gods in that area. And so what the psalmist is saying is, look up at those hills. Where does your help come from? I'll tell you where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those gods are just objects. They're just figments of our imagination. But our God is real. He made us. That's who I'm going to look to for my protection. The question this psalm asks is, what are you looking to? What are you looking to for your strength, your identity, your purpose, your peace, your joy? See, this is really a psalm about idolatry. Some of you were with us back in May and June when I, we did a whole series on idolatry and the struggle against idolatry in our hearts. And, and this is going to be a, a brief look at that topic. If you want a longer one, you can go back on our website and, and listen to those. But you may be sitting here saying, well, idolatry, is that really an issue today? I mean, we don't have shrines. We don't have high places. We don't have temples and altars to all these other gods. So that's not a problem for me. Oh, yes, it is. In fact, I think it's a bigger problem for us today. Because the Israelites had to go up into the hills and find a shrine. We've got our gods right in front of us. Because you see, an idol is anything other than God that you look to for your strength, for your purpose and peace, for your identity. An idol, you can tell what your idols are because you look at your credit card statement. What am I spending my money on? Okay, that's a good sign. That's a sign of what's most important in my life. You think about the, the things your mind drifts towards. What, what do you daydream about when, when there's nothing really pressing and urgent and you're just left to sit and, and think and ponder? What has your mind naturally been towards? And I'll give you the best way to know what your idols are. What makes you angry or afraid? Because nothing makes us angrier or more afraid than when somebody threatens one of our idols. So look at the last four or five times you really lost your temper or got upset, or got scared, or couldn't sleep at night, what was it, what was the motivating factor? There's probably an idol at the root of that. So let me give you some examples of idolatries we struggle with these days. If you are a person, and I'm not gonna look up because I don't wanna make anybody feel awkward, but if you are a person who cares very, very highly about your physical appearance, and you take great care to keep yourself in good shape, uh, if you find it very validating when the opposite sex finds you attractive, The thought of gaining weight or getting older is just, uh, you don't even want to think about it. You try to imagine it can never happen. That's an idol. If you are a highly intelligent person that has tremendous skills, you've gotten very good at certain things, you're the best you know of in certain areas, and you have these goals of great success and wealth, you know what you want to be, you spend your spare time reading books about leadership and about excellence and about greatness and success, The idea of failing or even just being ordinary is unthinkable to you. Or you dream of a perfect family. You pour yourself into the lives of your kids and you find your significance in their accomplishments. You find your security in their affections. The thought that they love you, that they adore you, that they admire you, that is everything to you. Or you've placed your hopes in a particular political candidate or party or ideology. That's what you spend your time thinking about, watching TV about, researching, reading about, talking about. For for that person, for that side to win, it means more than anything else to you. Because it's bigger than life or death. Or you measure yourself by what others think of you. You are a person who cares intensely about having the approval of the people around you. Not just your family and your close friends, but everybody. You need everybody to like you. And so you spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how can I impress these people? How can I put myself in the spotlight so they'll think that I'm good? Now, please understand, I just named five things. All five are good. None of these are evil things. They're all good things. It's good to take care of your physical body. It's the temple God gave you for His Holy Spirit to dwell in. Take care of this body you have. It's it's good to want to be successful. To make the most of the talents and the intelligence God gave you to get a good education, to to become a a successful person in the marketplace, that's that's glorious. To invest in your family, what could be better than to to pour out your life and to spend your life investing in your children, your grandchildren, your cousins, your parents, your spouse? Even pleasing other people is a good thing. If If you're doing your best to be the kind of person they need you to be, that's a good thing. Caring about the government of this country, Absolutely we should care. We better vote this week. That, that's our responsibility. All of these are good things. But when they become ultimate things, when they become our number one thing, when they become the thing that we truly serve, then they become a false god in our lives, and they lead us away from God, and away from the person God wants us to be, they warp our characters. And they can lead us into destruction. So think about it, if... If you idolize physical attractiveness, there's a very high degree of likelihood you'll be used by other people who are just as shallow as most of the rest of us. And when your looks are gone, and trust me, they will be gone someday, what will you have left? If you, if you long for success, what happens if there's, if there's an academic economic downturn? What happens if suddenly the jobs just aren't there? What happens when you realize you've sacrificed your family and your ideals to get where you wanted to get. If you idolize your family, you're going to put a burden on your children that they can never live up to, and they'll likely resent you for it, and their rejection will devastate you. If you idolize political power, then you'll be no different than any other political interest group in our country. Isn't that part of the reason why we're struggling to reach people today, they don't see the gospel of Jesus Christ in us. They see just another political interest group fighting for our rights, fighting for what we want, hating people who don't think like us. That's what happens when we idolize political power. If you idolize the approval and applause of others, take it from me, you won't experience abundant life because you will never put others first. It will always be about you. And you'll, you'll never experience peace because there's always somebody who's a little bit upset with you. Somebody who doesn't like you, not quite enough. And you'll never be bold because you'll always be afraid you're going to offend someone. And you can't stand the thought of that. So, now do you see what I mean when I said Psalm 121 is like that annoying neighbor? Because God just came down and told every single one of us, you're doing it wrong. Threads on the bolt run this way, not that way. And We don't like hearing that. In fact, I dare say most of you here this morning, if I gave you truth serum, would say, okay, Jeff, you're stepping over the line. You got into an area of my life I don't want you messing with. In fact, some of you are ready to talk to me afterwards and say, okay, I understand what you're saying, but let me explain this to you. No, let me explain this to you. God wants first place, not because he's petty, not because he needs the validation, because he knows that if we put anything else in first place, it's going to destroy us. He knows only He loves us that much. Only He knows the way. So what do we do? See, it's not enough to just acknowledge you have an idol. If I were to say, okay, family is my idol. I acknowledge it. My kids are too important to me. But I guess I'll sacrifice my own happiness for theirs. That's not good enough. Okay, I I admit I want to be successful. I'm going to work hard. That's just who I am. And I guess I won't be the kind of Christian I should be. That's not good enough. It's not enough to admit you have an idol. What do we do about it? This psalm psalm helps us understand. Identify your idols. Identify how your idols influence your life and change your path. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. You have to establish it now. Take a look at what you've been doing and where it hasn't worked. Let me give you three quick examples. So Andy Stanley, pastors in Atlanta, Uh, his church happens to draw a lot of young single adults and when they join his church, he will say periodically, he'll say, if you're single, I want to give you a challenge. Don't date anybody for a year. And people are like, what? He says, no, no, spend that year. Don't date anybody. Don't, don't go online. Get to know people of the opposite sex. Just, just be yourself and spend time with the Lord. He said, spend a year just devoted to growing in Christ so that in a year, you'll be more the person you need to be. That way, if you do get married somewhere down the road, you're the person that person's going to need. And if you don't get married, or if you do, either way, you have joy. You don't need Mr. or Ms. Wright to bring you joy because you've got Jesus. And of course, people immediately say, yeah, but what if I meet Mr. Wright in the meantime? What if I meet my soulmate in the next 12 months? And I've already said I can't date. What if they go off with someone else because I've made this commitment to the Lord? And he said, well, that's proof that this is an idol for you because you think I can't live if I don't have this person. Here's example number two. All right. You ready for this? So, I'm not the Holy Spirit. Can we all amen that, right? I'm not the Holy Spirit. But if I had my way, most Christians would spend a month without watching any news. No news at all. You're not going to turn it on TV. You're not going to open those emails that your friend sends you. You're not going to read the newspaper. You're not even going to click on those little articles online that that are clickbaity, you know, articles that are like, you know, oh, that, you know, that politician you don't like, well, here's video proof that he kicks puppies when no one's looking. You're not going to do any of that. You're not going to watch those shout-fests on TV where they tell you what to think. You're not going to do any of that. You're just going to fast from the news for a month to to show your soul that the world keeps turning and, and God keeps on his throne and everything's fine when you're not totally informed about what everybody's saying and doing. And then after that, you'll be content to say, you know, from now on, I don't need news all day. I'll watch the news 30 minutes. I'll pray over it. I'll go on with my day. I'll spend time on things that actually matter. I'll I'll glorify God. I'll love my neighbor. All right, number three. Since I jumped on your case, I'm going to jump on mine. Most of you know because you were here in May and June that of all these idols that I've mentioned, the one that I struggle the most with is the idol of affirmation, of wanting to please others. And so every Sunday, I've known this for a while, and so every Sunday, Sunday mornings, man, it's my favorite day of the week, but Sunday mornings are also a day of struggle for me with this idol. Because every Sunday morning I have to ask myself the question, are you excited about getting into that pulpit today because you want to impress several hundred people? because you want to make people think you're a really good preacher, because you want people to to like you, or are you excited because God's word is true, and because God reveals himself when his word is preached, and because people here, everybody here needs to connect with him, and I get to be a part of that, and so every week on my way to church, if you pass me on 105 on my way to church, and you see my lips moving, I'm not talking to myself, I'm talking to the Lord, and I'm saying, Lord, strip me of all that vanity and pride, and all those un- impure motives that you know are in me and maybe the day will come when I won't have to pray that prayer but for now I do and I bet there's people in this room that need to pray something similar I bet there's people in this room that need to wake up on, uh, every morning and just say Lord today help me to serve you by serving others instead of serving myself by trying to please them so identify how your idols influence your life and change your path listen guys I've been there. You're pushing on that bolt with all your might. You can even convince yourself, hey, I think, it, I think it twisted a little bit that time. It's time to turn that bolt around. It's time to turn that wrench around and start pushing it the right direction. The Bible calls that repentance. That's always the path to joy and peace and salvation. Number two, make the Lord your keeper. So I mentioned eight different times that phrase or that word keep or keeper is mentioned. And that's the center of the book uh, of the psalm. The Lord is your keeper. Another way to say that is the Lord is your bodyguard. Now, probably none of us has ever been famous enough that we have a personal bodyguard assigned to it. Maybe in work you do, you're around people who do security and and that kind of thing. But I I want you to imagine you've got a personal bodyguard who is there to protect you, who's devoted his life to protecting you. And I, I don't mean just a guy with a big neck. I mean a guy who has trained, who knows stuff, who can spot danger, who knows how to guide you. So imagine you're on a walk with your bodyguard. And you're walking through this neighborhood, and he says, "Um, excuse me, the next couple of blocks are pretty hairy, so I want to take a ride up here, and we're going to go about a quarter mile that way and cut left, and then we'll get back on our track in about a half a mile. Now, if your bodyguard says that to you, are you likely to say, wait a second, do you work for me or do I work for you? I want to go straight. Your job is to protect me, not to tell me what to do. I'm going to go straight. If you do that, then why even have a bodyguard? If you're going to ignore his advice, the person whose job it is to protect you, then why even have him? And that's the relationship a lot of us have with our Heavenly Father. The Lord is my keeper. Amen. Okay, so that means I can do whatever I want. He's going to keep me safe, right? Just try it. You know, the sun will not harm you by day. Go sit at a football game and don't put on sunscreen. See what happens to you. Listen to the Lord. If he's your keeper, you're going to listen to him. If he's your keeper, you're going to say at the beginning of every day, this is why it's so important to start the day with prayer. You're going to say, Lord, you know my stubborn heart. You know that if I do what I want to do today, I'm going to make a mess of things. So today, right at the start of the day, just help me to follow you. Show me your way. Lord, if there's any way in me that's out of balance with you, any motivation in me that's wrong, any direction I'm planning to take that you know is not the right direction, show me because I want to be completely conformed to you. Now, is that a decision you can make here this morning? Absolutely. And I hope you do. Let me just tell you by personal experience, that's a decision you need to make every single day. Lord, help me to conform to you today. Help me to do what is right. Help me to do your will today. Now, you want some good news? So here's the good news. Our God does not sleep. We serve a sleepless Savior. The interesting thing is when Psalm 121 was written, there were all these gods in the Israel area and they all had a tendency to hibernate. I'm not making this up. That was what priests were for. Priests' job was to wake up their gods. So we see this in 1 Kings 18, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. So Elijah, one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament, is standing on top of Mount Carmel. And he has just challenged all the prophets of Baal to, I guess you'd call it a god-off. So they're having a standoff where, okay, let's see whose god is real. So he, he's a gentleman. He lets the prophets of Baal go first. They're wanting to, to see if Baal can make fire come from heaven and, and roast the sacrifice. By the way, Baal was the Mesopotamian fertility god. There you go. So 450 prophets, they're singing, they're chanting, they're dancing, they're jumping around, they're cutting themselves with spears. Blood is flowing because they're thinking, come on, Baal, wake up. We want to see some action. And eventually, I'm not making this up, Elijah, Elijah starts to make fun of the prophets of Baal. He says, hey guys, shout louder. Maybe he can't hear too well. Maybe he's too far away. Maybe he's asleep. You know, maybe he's taking a potty break. We all got to do that once in a while. Shout louder. We'll wait. But nothing happens. Elijah gives them all day. Sun's starting to set. And he steps up, calls on God, fire falls, sacrifice is consumed the Israelites fall to their knees and say, The Lord, He is God. Our God does not sleep. See, the funny thing is about all our idolatries, there's always an if only or as long as. You know, you'll get rich as long as the economy stays good. You'll be secure as long as the right guy gets elected. You'll be happy as long as you, you know, stay young and attractive. Um, you know, you'll, you'll have a good life as long as your kids still think you're the bomb. Uh, you're somebody unless, you know, somebody gets mad at you, but our God has no if only's or as long as God is God and he doesn't change and he doesn't sleep. Eugene Peterson writes all the water in all the oceans cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside it, nor can all the trouble in all the world harm us unless it gets within us. There's no promise in the Bible. We'll never have trouble. As long as we got God, our trouble will get inside of us. Our God will carry us through the storms. Our help is on the way. Right? People may let us down. They will. Our money will go away. It's going to happen. Our bodies will fail. But our God never sleeps. Hope in Him does not disappoint because He keeps our soul on the night before Jesus was arrested and crucified, in fact, just hours before it happened. Jesus, who was fully divine, but also fully human, he was consumed with fear. He was about to experience the kind of pain no one has ever experienced before or since. He was about to experience the hell and the damnation and the judgment that every human being has ever deserved all poured out onto one human being. So he was justifiably afraid. And in his flesh, he wanted to run away. He wanted to say, forget this, I don't deserve this, because that was literally true. And so he went to a place called Gethsemane, a place he'd been many times before, an olive grove, and he knelt there and he prayed. And he brought his three closest friends with him, but they didn't pray, they fell asleep. They couldn't stay awake because it had been a long, stressful day, and it was late at night. And he woke them up three times, but they couldn't stay awake, but he never closed his eyes. Prayed with his head, forehead to the ground. Prayed with such intensity that the capillaries in his skin burst and blood poured from his pores. Prayed in agony, but never slept. You know why? Because our salvation was on the line. He needed the strength it took to go to the cross to take our judgment for us. That's how important our salvation was. And he's still awake today. He never sleeps. His eyes are on you day and night, night and day. There's no one else who can say that. He's our keeper. We can trust in him and him alone.